Good morning, everyone. Well, today's sermon is entitled Preparing the Way for the Lord. And our scripture is Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. So please open your Bibles to follow along with me. Let's read Mark chapter 1, 1 to 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Last week, our focus was on Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And as we saw, it was really uh, the title for Mark's account of his gospel. And gospel being the good news. It is content that is celebratory. And so just a note, when we speak about uh, sharing the gospel as individuals or as a church, uh, it must actually involve words. Uh, The gospel is a proclamation. And in regards to that proclamation, it is specific words. There is specific content to this good news. It is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we saw in these opening, or this opening verse, it is about Jesus. It is about his humanity. He is truly human. It is about his royalty. He is Christ, the anointed and awaited king. And it is about his deity. He is truly God. Only he, then, can be the mediator between God and mankind. And so the gospel is the eternal son of God who took on human flesh so that he could die on the cross for the sins of his people and on the third day physically rise again. But there is great offence in this message. To see Christ's coming as good news, a person must actually acknowledge themselves as a sinner. Not merely missing the mark on the odd occasion here and there, but totally depraved. The offence of the cross is that we must... humbly acknowledge that we are not good people. Now, many times we compare ourselves with others in regards to you know, our own goodness. Next to so-and-so over here, I look pretty good. But it's not in comparison to other men and women that we find along the way that our goodness is calculated. C.S. Lewis once wrote that a, man, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something 
that is above you. Of course, it is God who is above us. It is before God that our goodness is measured. This God who is holy, this God who is infinitely set apart and morally perfect, it's before God that our goodness is measured. And before God, our good works to earn salvation are like filthy rags, as Isaiah says. So when John the Baptist arrived on the scene in fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, his message was a pride killer. His message was that uh, good news was coming. But to receive this good news, each person must repent of their sins, that their hearts may be ready for what is coming. While we live on this side of Christ's arrival, the preparation needed to receive him is exactly the same. We are called to repent of our sins, to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge our need for a saviour, to acknowledge that it is only the true God who can save. So in this passage then are three things that I want us to see. Number one, the hope declared. I want us to see that the arrival of this good news is a promise from long ago. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Number two, the herald deployed. I want us to see the care that God has taken to prepare the way for Jesus in sending the prophet John. And number three, the Holy Spirit destined. See, with the arrival of Jesus comes the promise uh, that he will send the Holy Spirit to indwell and to empower all his people, not just some, as in the Old Testament. Now, we're going to save discussing this till next week so we can have ample time to uh, look at what it means to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. Nothing controversial there. So, number one, the hope declared. Mark quotes uh, from the Old Testament prophets to show that John's arrival has always been part of God's redemptive plan. As it is written, he opens up. And he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures and multiple times throughout uh, Mark's writing, he refers back to uh, the Old Testament with this statement, as it is written either him talking about it or recording Jesus' words. You see, God's plan is established in history. It's not a contingency plan when Jesus rocks up. It's not plan B. We can see that as we work through the whole of the scriptures. Uh, We haven't even left the Garden of Eden before we see this hope of a saviour. In Genesis chapter 3, when God uh, curses the serpent, in verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. They had just fallen and sinned just into the world and yet here is a promise of hope. But it's not just at creation uh, when this hope of a saviour uh, stems from. 
It is before the foundation of the world itself, back into all eternity. In Ephesians chapter 1, that incredible uh, chapter where Paul just uh, unleashes praise after praise after praise for what God has done for us, he opens with these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. This plan goes back before the foundation of the world was laid. It has always, always been God's plan to create, to redeem, to glorify a people for his own under the kingship of his son. Now, while Mark's audience is predominantly Gentiles in Rome that we looked at last week, uh, and these people uh, would not be as concerned with the writings of the Hebrew prophets, this phrase, as it is written, uh, is still used in the language of the Greco-Roman world, and it introduces laws, and it, uh, it declares legal force. And so as Mark opens his gospel, he is saying there is authority to this message. So you must pay attention. And as we understood last week, this authority is a divine authority. So as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, actually, the writings of two prophets are found in these opening few verses. Verse 2 there is a quote from Malachi. And in verse 3, there is a quote from Isaiah. Now, why has Mark mentioned just one? Well, uh, it was an ancient convention to, uh, if there are multiple quotes, to quote the most prominent. And of course, the text from Isaiah is what is mainly expanded upon as well in the following verses. So there's no issue that might discredit the inerrancy or the truthfulness of scripture that we find here. So why does Mark put these two quotes together? Well, to understand that we need to look at the context of each one of these verses. So if you can turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, it's easy to find, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Prophet Malachi served God somewhere between 450 and 430 BC. And it was during the time that the Israelites had returned to Judah after their captivity from Babylon. They'd, they'd been back in Israel about a hundred years or so. Now, despite the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, despite the prophetic warnings of Haggai and Zechariah, the Israelites still continued in their sin. They'd just been brought back from exile and yet they were still the same. They thought they were secure in their relationship with God. You know, as long as they carried out uh, the formal outward requirements of worship, as long as they were seen to be doing the right thing, it didn't really so matter, didn't matter so much as to how they lived or how they thought. And how true is that today? Many 
give the outward appearance of sincere devotion to God. Yet we know that the Lord tests and knows the heart of each one of us. Even if we think we can hide from those around us, we cannot hide from the Lord. So Malachi is a series of charges and consequences. And our concern focuses uh, from chapter 2 verse 17 where the Lord promises to come and he sends a messenger to prepare the way. So let me read. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So when the Lord comes, verses 2 to 4 there, we see that he will purify sinners. There will be a newness to them but it will come through a purification process but then in verse 5 we see that others he will judge and the result as to whether people will find themselves in one group or the other will be determined by how people respond to the prophet's message whether they respond in humility or whether they respond in pride whether they respond in repentance or whether they respond in arrogance. And so why does Mark quote Malachi? Well, simply because this prophecy is fulfilled in the arrival of John the Baptist, a messenger before the Lord. And because this prophecy is fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we noted last week That Son of God refers to Jesus' deity. He is God the Son. And the deity of Jesus is emphasized even further here when we look back to Malachi chapter 3. Who does Malachi say will follow the messenger? The Lord himself. Me. I will follow. It is Yahweh who will come. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And so Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, changed me to you to highlight that Jesus is the divine Lord who is coming. He is the absolute sovereign 
over all creation. So that is Malachi. But what then does Isaiah have to say? So if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. The prophet Isaiah served God much earlier than Malachi. Ministering approximately between 739 BC and 686 BC. He preached before the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah, which happened in between 605 and 586 BC. And Isaiah prophesied about the coming judgment of exile, and he prophesied as well about the coming hope of return that would happen later. And this hope is specifically discussed from chapter 40 onwards. And it's a message of comfort and of promise. Let me read the first five verses there. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Comfort, promise. Isaiah predicts a messenger who will come, this voice crying from the wilderness. And Isaiah again predicts the Lord who will come. He says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway to our God. The divine king is coming. But this message of hope, again, contains that command to prepare the way, to make straight the paths. Ancient kings would send uh, people ahead to clear obstructions or obstacles in the way that the path was made straight for them. And what Isaiah is using this picture of is a metaphor for repentance. To receive the comfort, to receive the promise and the hope person must humble themselves before God in repentance to repair the way for the Lord in their own hearts minds attitude and will it's not a work that's acknowledging that we have no works that can earn our stead before God what does that look like well we'll see in a moment as we move now from the hope declared to the herald deployed The Lord's arrival prepared by this messenger is fulfilled when John the Baptist began his public ministry. So let's look at his nature, the nature of this herald. John means the Lord is gracious. And how appropriate is that? See, while the Lord is a righteous judge, he is at the same time a gracious judge. Saviour. 
John comes in the grace of the Lord as he tells people what they must do for this salvation. Now, John was clearly a prophet. His attire and his appetite give that away. Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. His attire links him back to the great prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, Elijah is described as a man who wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. People aren't going to miss that imagery right there. It's also significant because in the book of Malachi, in his prophecies, in chapter 4, who is this messenger of the Lord? Malachi tells us that it is Elijah who will come. Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus also identifies John the Baptist as the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah has come, says Jesus. His attire also speaks to his lack of concern about the trappings of riches, things that the other religious leaders had succumbed to. John is devoted to God. And his appetite reflects this devotion as well. In Leviticus chapter 11, we read that uh, locusts are listed as those clean animals that the Israelites were allowed to eat in the wilderness. So John was a man concerned with God's heart, not concerned over worldly pleasures or worldly prestige. John's nature is similar to the Apostle Paul. Uh, In writing his first letter to the Thessalonians, he said in chapter 2, For our gospel does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. If people looked at our lives and our service to God, would they see people pleasers or would they see those seeking to please the Lord? If people could look past our outward experiences to our hearts, would people see God pleasers or people pleasers? This was John's nature. He was devoted to God, which was essential because he was a preacher. He was a herald. A herald is like a, a town crier standing in the streets declaring the king's edict. Hear ye, hear ye, this is what the king says. That's what preaching is. It's to declare the message of God. And the preacher has no right to change or alter that message in any way. But to stand there and declare it boldly, experience whatever consequences may come. 
This is especially important for John in his privileged position as the one who directly prepares the way for the Lord. So that's his nature. And what is this message? What is his notice? Verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's not proclaiming a, a works righteousness. John was not saying that salvation was found in the physical act of baptism. Being dunked under the water never saved a single soul. The word for here points to the reason. That is, because your sins have been forgiven, you must be baptised. It is a sign of your repentance. And why is he proclaiming this message of baptism for repentance? Well, he's speaking to Jews who think of themselves as already within the kingdom of God. Now, Jews would baptise Gentiles who converted to Judaism, but John was calling the Jews to be baptised. And essentially, he's saying to them, you're not in the kingdom as you think you are. For them to submit to baptism was to humble themselves and act as evidence that they had repented, that they were willing to submit themselves to this teaching. By calling for this baptism of repentance, John was readying the people for the arrival of the Lord by getting them to realise their need for salvation and their need of a saviour. The forgiveness of sin that they experienced was in light of what the Saviour King would soon accomplish on the cross. We stand on this side of the cross and our forgiveness is in light of what he has done. Salvation has always been through Christ alone. Now let me just focus in on this notion of repentance. What is repentance? Is a radical turning from sin to a new way of life oriented towards God. It's demonstrated again in the, the letter to the Thessalonians. Paul speaks about them and he says, they've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It is a drastic change of direction. Life headed one way, a U-turn and heading as fast as we can into this new life. What it means though is that you cannot go in two directions at the one time. Now genuine repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates a sinner's heart and enables them to choose God when they could not before. Repentance is a sign that regeneration has occurred. But repentance in itself will always exhibit fruit. It will always be evidenced by a life directed away from sin and a life directed toward God. Matthew and Luke record more of what John the Baptist declared, especially against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Let me open to Matthew's Gospel. And in chapter 3, we read this. In 
from verse 7. But when he, that's John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. He's not there to make friends. <laughs> you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Everyone who trusts in the Saviour, having repented of their sins, is forgiven their sins and declared righteous before God. And that righteousness is Christ's own righteousness, not ours. And only in the new heavens and the new earth will we become completely glorified. Until then, we we still remain sinners. And we, like Paul who wrote in Romans 7, we struggle every day to overcome sin. But we do so with the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet the life of a Christian overall should be a continual growth upwards. There may be divots along the way, but the general direction is clear. We need to be growing in sanctification, growing in holiness. We cannot, however, be assured of our salvation if there are two distinct paths that we are walking on in our lives. Two opposing paths. We cannot walk a godly life and walk a worldly path at the same time. If we do, we fall under the same condemning words that John declared to the Pharisees. We could be called religious, but we could not be called faithful. Now this message obviously struck a chord with the people. In verse 5 we read that the whole country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and they were confessing their sins. John's ministry caused such a stir because the people hadn't seen a prophet in over 400 years. And this prophet held no punches back. He cut them to the heart and they repented in droves. But the validity of their response, however, would ultimately be determined by their response to the one the messenger spoke of. John prepared the way. But would they listen to the saviour? When he arrived. As I said, we will continue on with verses 7 to 8 next week. But let me conclude today with what we've looked at by tying together all these little aspects. The hope declared and the herald deployed has been a repeated pattern throughout Israel's history. God had declared his promises in the past and then God had sent his prophets to remind his people and hold his people accountable to those promises uh, as time went along. The arrival of John in the wilderness takes us immediately back to the Exodus. God's promises in the past to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that God will make a people for himself through them 
Well, these promises were reiterated through Moses, the prophet, who called the people of Israel, remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel, called them to come out of Egypt and to worship the Lord. And where did he call them to come to worship? In the wilderness. The wilderness was meant to be the road to the promised land. But Israel's disobedience meant that the wilderness became a time of testing and of judgment. Now these things would not be lost on the Jews as they headed out to the wilderness, headed out to hear John's message of repentance, headed out to experience John's baptism signifying forgiveness of sins. As one writer said, the willingness to return to the wilderness signifies the acknowledgement of Israel's history as one of disobedience and rebellion and a desire to begin once more. In the first exodus, Moses prepared the way, but it was Joshua who led the people into the promised land. In this new exodus, John prepares the way, but it is Jesus, Jesus being the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Joshua. It is Jesus, the Lord himself, who will lead people into the true rest of the promised land, eternal life in the kingdom of God. So here is the gospel. In humbly acknowledging our sinfulness before God, he graciously brings us forth into new life through Jesus Christ. We cannot experience this new life without letting go of the old life. We cannot claim to have faith if we have not genuinely repented. And so the challenge for us today is to lay down our pride, lay down our sin, lay ourselves before holy God that we may find ourselves raised in glory through Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word. It's not merely to us now in the 21st century that you've revealed yourself through your word, but you've been doing that since the beginning. As John the Baptist came and and preached, he uh, was calling people back to the promises and the hope of old. We thank you that you... Uh, through, through Christ, it has not been a, a plan B. It's not been something that uh, you have had to come up with because things didn't work out the way you'd hoped. But that your plan of redemption, of salvation, has always been through Christ. We thank you that uh, for the Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled through the arrival of John and as he prepares the way for the Lord. Father, we thank you for this message of John the Baptist. It is not irrelevant for us now that Christ has returned. It it highlights the necessity of repentance. It highlights the necessity for us to realise that we are not good people, not good people compared to you and your infinite holiness. Father, we thank you that not only are you a righteous judge, but you are a gracious saviour. 
And so while this message is an offence to have us realise that we are, are sinful and under your wrath, it is good news as we realise the position that we are in and the position that we can be in through faith in Christ. We thank you for our glorious Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.